Security threats are everywhere. But with Xfinity XFi, you're notified of threats to your in-home Wi-Fi network, so all your connected devices are protected. That's simple, easy, awesome. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit today. Restrictions apply. Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. As far as cryptids go, few are more fascinating or enduring than the legendary Bigfoot. Also known as Sasquatch, the giant ape-like creature is primarily known through numerous claimed sightings in wilderness and forested areas of Pacific Northwest America. Scientists discount the existence of Bigfoot due to the lack of physical evidence and the size of the breeding groups that would be required to sustain it as a viable creature. However, the large number of sightings from credible people and the famous 16-millimeter film taken by Roger Patterson have convinced some that Bigfoot-like creatures really do exist in the United States. The question we all want an answer to is simple. Is Bigfoot real? I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos! This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale for me to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you've not done so already so you don't miss a single episode. I post a new episode every day of the week. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness… A group of friends immerse themselves in libations before heading to a séance at a pub, and no one takes it seriously until they have reason. A mother and daughter go camping with the Girl Scouts, but what they experienced was not part of the fun, age-appropriate itinerary. Kirk Anderson said that Joyce McKinney tied him to a bed for three days and raped him repeatedly. She said that wasn't possible. Those interested in the paranormal likely already have heard of black-eyed kids or shadow people, but one person came across a being that inhabited the body of a co-worker and turned the face completely black. If you lived in Illinois in 1977, you might have looked to the skies to see something terrifying, as Illinois was under siege by winged weirdness in the form of giant feathered fowls. A perimeter search revealed bloodstains in the yard and bloody prints on the nearby garage. What happened to Evelyn Hartley? A woman searches in vain for important papers and gets a little help from a deceased grandparent. And does a giant bipedal mammal unknown to science exist in the United States? We begin with that story. Now bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. There have been Sasquatch sightings for centuries in North America 
with thousands of people claiming to have seen Bigfoot-like creatures, usually in sparsely populated areas of the country. Mainstream science dismisses all of these as either misidentification, for example, brown bears or as deliberate hoaxes. But could so many people really not trust their own eyes? Eyewitness evidence is notoriously unreliable, and fakery and hoax have plagued serious studies of Bigfoot for years. Nevertheless, there remains a significant number of eyewitness accounts that cannot easily be dismissed. Reliable witnesses, such as policemen, forest rangers, and medical professionals have all given detailed and convincing eyewitness statements. One U.S. Forest Service officer, an experienced outdoorsman, observed a large jet-black creature on a beach in Oregon in 1995 and later took several photographs of the oversized footprints it left in the sand. This account and the physical evidence to back it up is compelling, and it's difficult to explain it as a misidentification or a hoax, and it's not the only one that defies obvious explanation. Other solid sightings by trained professionals are equally well-documented, but many authoritative observers fear coming forward in case they risk their jobs and reputations. This leaves the study of Bigfoot replete with too many anonymous statements which are difficult or impossible to verify. A 16-millimeter film taken by Roger Patterson and Roger Gimlin in 1967 remains the best-known and most credible of all Bigfoot films. Allegedly showing a female Bigfoot crossing a clearing in Bluff Creek, California, the Patterson-Gimlin film has been subject to fierce debate ever since over its veracity. Attempts to definitely debunk or definitely authenticate the film have proven fruitless, and the filmmakers have consistently rejected any claim that they hoaxed the footage by filming a man in a suit. Those who know Patterson personally think that it's very unlikely he faked the encounter, and he has no history of such behavior. That he himself was subject to a hoax is also a possibility. Numerous casts and photographs have appeared over the years purporting to show Bigfoot footprints. Renowned primatologist John Napier was one of the first experts to treat the prints seriously. He studied hundreds of casts and photographs and interviewed witnesses and amateur investigators. Whilst Napier's research was inconclusive, he didn't entirely dismiss the idea that Bigfoot could be a real creature. However, with no real Bigfoot tracks to compare against, the prints are impossible to authenticate and with fraud widespread, they remain inconclusive either way. Whilst man has hunted evidence of Bigfoot for decades, in all of that time not a single verifiable Bigfoot skeleton, bone, or carcass has ever been found. Numerous examples of alleged Bigfoot hair and blood have been found, but they invariably turn out to be either hair from other known animals or of inconclusive origin. It seems incredibly unlikely that no physical evidence has ever been found for a creature that, if real, must exist in large enough number to have sustained itself for centuries. If one thing more than anything has damaged Bigfoot research as a serious discipline it's the sheer number of hoaxes that have plagued the field. Fakery and fraud are rife, often cheerfully admitted by the perpetrators. It's not a new phenomenon. Rant Mullins revealed in 1982 
that he and his friends had carved giant Bigfoot tracks and used them to fake footprints as far back as 1930. The most notorious modern fraudsters are Ray Wallace, who claimed to have faked hundreds of Bigfoot tracks, and Rick Dyer, who announced to the world in 2008 that he had captured a Bigfoot corpse, only for it to turn out to be a Halloween costume stuffed with roadkill and entrails. Considering the large number of sightings and the modern ubiquity of camera phones, there remain few credible films or photographs that have clearly captured a creature that may be Bigfoot. In fact, aside from the Patterson film, most films supposedly showing Bigfoot creatures are extremely poor quality, blurry, and entirely inconclusive. Several photographs and films purportedly showing dead Bigfoot bodies have also surfaced over the years, but invariably turn out to be, often somewhat obvious, fakes. My mind can't stop debating over this experience of mine, if this falls under the paranormal category or just another episode of my mind going crazy. You see, prior to this experience, I had a couple of traumatic incidents that completely changed my mentality. My parents, who are completely aware of this, suggested that I should see a specialist, but right away I told them I don't need a doctor because I'm not crazy and I'm nowhere near suicidal. It was a normal Friday morning. I went to work, as usual, doing this and that just to keep myself busy when our cashier approached and updated me about the checks to be released. I told her that I'm going to pass her message to the person who is really in charge of that. Let's just name that person in charge Jay. Well, I went to Jay's table. I stood there looking at her for about five seconds, and I swear her face was as black as the night. I'm not talking about dim-lit black, but black as black. This might sound comedic if her skin really is black, but it's not. You can compare her skin tone to that of a Korean or Japanese. She's not the Morena type, which most Filipinas are. Five seconds might be short, but for me, that's long enough to realize that I'm talking to a different person, perhaps a different entity. One thing's for sure, that's not her. I felt this kind of fear inside my gut, but still, I relayed to her our cashier's message. I returned to my table with my brain clouded with fear, confusion, and survival instinct that that entity is out to get me. That day ended with calming myself not to do anything about it, to ignore it. Up until now, I'm still disturbed about it, though. I never told Jay about this. I know in myself that I'm not crazy and I know what I saw. I decided to share this, hoping that, in this way, I could get over the experience. Thanks for sharing my story. One autumn day in 1977, the police in Devon, England got an unusual call for help. A young member of the Mormon church claimed that he had just been imprisoned and raped by a woman for three days chained to a bed and forced to try to impregnate her. He claimed that he'd only managed to escape after promising to marry his captor, at which point she unchained him and he fled. Newspapers throughout the country quickly seized upon this lurid story 
and soon headlines about the manacled Mormon were sweeping across England. The Mormon missionary, a 21-year-old American named Kirk Anderson, claimed that his abductor had literally put a gun to his head and forced him into a car. He then claimed that she drove him to a small cottage in Devon, where he was chained, spread-eagled to a bed, and raped over the course of three days. He later stated in court, I didn't wish it to happen, I was extremely depressed and upset after being forced to have sex. But the alleged captor, another American named Joyce McKinney, told a different story, and the truth at the heart of the manacled Mormon case remains a subject of lurid fascination to this day. After Kirk Anderson contacted the police, they apprehended 28-year-old Joyce McKinney along with her alleged accomplice, 24-year-old Keith May, who was claimed to have participated in the initial kidnapping of Anderson. But McKinney quickly conveyed to police a much different version of events than the one that Anderson had given. McKinney had met and briefly dated Anderson while living in Utah. The former Miss Wyoming claimed that Anderson had wanted to marry her, but his church had not approved because she was not a Mormon, at which point he left without a trace. After hiring a private investigator to track her lost lover down, she set off for England to rescue him from the church, what she claimed was a cult that was brainwashing him. McKinney claimed that when she made contact with Anderson on September 14th in Ewell, Surrey, he willingly got into her car and then engaged in sexual activities with her of his own volition, although she claimed he was impotent at first and broke off intercourse to begin chanting a prayer. It was only after she tied him up consensually, she claimed, that he was able to overcome his religious reservations. And for Joyce McKinney, it wasn't just about sex, but also about love. In court, McKinney later stated that she loved Anderson so much that I would have skied down Mount Everest in the nude with a carnation up my nose if he asked me to. Whatever the truth of the matter in terms of what happened between McKinney and Anderson, during the three days in question, which may never fully be known, there can be no doubt that it was a tabloid gold mine. The recent documentary Tabloid from director Errol Morris reviews the case of the manacled Mormon through the lens of the people who lived it, as well as the journalists who covered the ensuing trial. The two sides of the case were taken up by two major British tabloids, with the Daily Express supporting McKinney and the Daily Mail trying to portray her as a voracious, dangerous sexual predator. As even the journalists interviewed for tabloid admit, the real story of the manacled Mormon scandal probably lies somewhere in the middle of the two versions. Kirk Anderson and Joyce McKinney had definitely been involved romantically while living in Utah, although whether he had actually intended to marry her is another question. Nevertheless, there can be little argument that McKinney's love for Anderson, no matter how pure in origin, was obsessive. In addition to asserting her love for Anderson, McKinney also stated that she believed that it was impossible for a woman to rape a man, stating that it's like trying to put a marshmallow into a parking meter. Nevertheless, a 2017 report analyzing data from the U.S. Bureau of Justice Statistics concluded that the actual case reports contradict the common belief that female sexual perpetration is rare. One study quoted in the report found that 43% of the 284 college and high school males interviewed 
stated that they had been sexually coerced and that 95% of the incidents had been perpetrated by females. However, in the UK at the time of the manacled Mormon case, charges of rape could not be brought against a woman when the alleged victim was a man. So, although arrested and briefly held in jail on kidnapping and assault charges, along with Keith May, Joyce McKinney was never charged with the rape of Kirk Anderson. In any event, she jumped bail and returned to the United States, and British authorities never sought her extradition. With that, the manacled Mormon case came to an inconclusive end. But in 1984, the case popped up again, after McKinney was arrested after being found near Anderson's workplace in Salt Lake City, allegedly with rope and handcuffs in her car. McKinney claims she simply happened to be passing through the airport where he was working. McKinney briefly reappeared in headlines again in 2008, for different reasons altogether, after becoming the owner of the world's first cloned puppies. A laboratory in Seoul, South Korea had cloned McKinney's beloved pet Booger for her. Amid the ensuing publicity, the newspaper identified her as the woman from the Kirk Anderson case decades earlier. When asked if she was the same Joyce McKinney of manacled Mormon fame, she supposedly snapped, are you going to ask me about my dogs or not, because that's all I'm prepared to talk to you about. Even after all these years, we may never know the truth about the manacled Mormon. Coming up, a group of friends immerse themselves in libations before heading to a seance at a pub, and no one takes it seriously until they have reason. A perimeter search revealed blood stains in the yard and bloody prints on the nearby garage. What happened to Evelyn Hartley? And a woman searches in vain for important papers and gets a little help from a deceased grandparent. These stories and more when Weird Darkness returns. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by the terrifying audiobook Into Darkness by Jason R. Davis, the greatly anticipated sequel to his novel Inside the Mirrors. Previously available only to Weird Darkness patrons, Into Darkness is now available worldwide. A creature part of the darkness before God created the heavens and earth has awakened. It had slumbered, hibernating from the light. Now it is hungry and wanting to feed. Bobby, a local kid, and the police chief have gone missing. Everyone in the small town of Standard is turning to former Chicago cop Rob Aletto to find them. But as he starts his search, more people disappear. Rob is quickly overwhelmed. The night itself seems to come alive, taking these people. Aletto must find out why and discover a way to stop it before the entire town slips into darkness. Into Darkness by Jason R. Davis, narrated by Weird Darkness host Darren Marlar. Hear a free sample of the audiobook on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com. Congratulations to Amy! She's this week's Weird Darkness retweet winner, and she's receiving a giant Weird Darkness throw pillow. And if you want to win some free Weird Darkness merchandise, it's easy to get your name in the random drawing each month. 
follow Weird Darkness on Twitter, and then retweet the posts when you see them. You can retweet as many of them as you'd like. The more you retweet, the greater your chance of winning. A new drawing every Monday. This week, the winner will receive a Weird Darkness laptop case. So jump onto Twitter and follow Weird Darkness right now and get to retweeting, you weirdo! Hi, Darren. I've never told anyone before this story as it still seems pretty unbelievable after all these years. When I lived in London in the 1980s, our regular pub was the Noggins Bonce in Peckham. It was a large pub with several rooms upstairs that they used to rent out for functions, wakes, etc. I remember at the time that people used to talk about strange things going on upstairs, such as unexplained shadows, horrible smells, and cold patches, but I always thought that these experiences were caused by people having one too many drinks and dismissed all the stories. Anyway, one evening I'd had one too many drinks myself and found myself going upstairs with my friends Rodney, Boise, Trigg, Dell, my Uncle Albert, and the landlord Mike for a seance with a local psychic medium. Now, as I did have a few too many drinks and was in the company of friends, I treated this as an opportunity to have a laugh, and I think it's fair to say that none of us were taking it seriously. When we got into the room, it was the usual setup of lights off, large round table with a heavy red velvet tablecloth, and a few candles dotted around the place. The psychic told us to sit all around the table and link hands. This took a while as we found the whole situation ridiculous. We all shouted, is anyone there? a few times before we all calmed down. But once we did sit down, linked hands and stayed quiet for what seemed like a lifetime, the psychic started asking if there was anyone there. Despite a few snickers from my friends, we heard nothing apart from a bit of noise coming from the bar downstairs. Again, the psychic asked, is there anyone there? And again, there was no response. This continued numerous times until I thought that I felt a cold spot behind me. To be honest, I dismissed this at the time as my imagination, or a draft, but it seemed to linger around for a long time. I told my friends what I could feel, but they just laughed at me and accused me of taking a bribe from the psychic. It was at this point that we could hear a very faint, dull thud. At first I thought I was imagining it, but it slowly got louder and more frequent before finally stopping completely. We all looked at each other expecting the person next to us to burst out laughing and say, don't worry, it was only me knocking the table, but no one did. The psychic then said, quiet, someone is near. It is saying it wants to talk to a child. It seemed like something out of a horror film at this point, but I was still sure that it was all a prank. Then the cold spot turned to something that I still can't adequately describe to this day. My back went extremely hot, itchy, and I had the feeling to get up and run out of the room as fast as I could. There was something by me that felt incredibly evil. I started to feel sick and stood up quickly. I turned to run to the door, knocking my chair over in the process. It was then that I saw it. I'm still not sure to this day if it was my imagination, but it seems so completely strange and unexplainable that deep down I know I saw something. 
Despite the room being in darkness, apart from a couple of candles, I could see the outline of a man that seemed to be darker than the darkened room. The image only lasted a split second, but even now I can still picture it in my mind. When I say the figure was dark, but I could still make out its details, it sounds odd and I can't explain it. The figure seemed to be an elderly man with white hair and a tracksuit that reflected what little light there was in the room and jewelry around its neck and on its wrists. It had one piece of jewelry around its neck that for some reason seemed to stick in my memory. It was some kind of square pendant with writing on it, but I couldn't read the writing. As I said, this figure only lasted for a split second, but it seemed to morph into a shadow and move away from the door. I bolted for the door completely startled at what I had seen. As I reached the point at which the figure had been standing, I could smell strong, acrid cigar smoke, and I'm sure something whispered in my ear, now then, now then. I've never opened a door so quickly in my life or ran down some stairs that fast for that matter. I don't know what was going on in the room upstairs, but I could hear some laughing. I ordered a large whiskey at the bar to settle my nerves. I never did tell my friends what I actually saw, but they wouldn't have believed me anyway. I never really did go back to that pub again, and I lost contact with my friends. However, years later, I saw Dell, and he said that the week after that someone else had said that during another seance something or someone had whispered the name Jimmy into someone's ear. No one believed him either. The pub was demolished in the 1990s, and I've Googled it a few times to see if anyone else has put any details on the pub being haunted. They haven't. But I know what I saw. I know what I felt and heard that night. Along the bank of the Mississippi River in southwest Wisconsin lies the city of La Crosse. It's a charming community and regularly ranks as one of Wisconsin's most desirable places to live. But its pleasant reputation was marred on October 24, 1953. On this night, 15-year-old Evelyn Grace Hartley went on a babysitting job and was never seen again. Evelyn Hartley was a sophomore at Central High School. Her father, Richard Hartley, was a biology professor at La Crosse State College. Her mother, Ethel, was a homemaker. On that fateful evening, Evelyn left for the home of another college professor, Vigo Rasmussen, in order to watch the Rasmussen's 20-month-old baby. She was wearing red jeans, a white blouse, glasses, and white bobby socks. Evelyn typically called her parents to check in during her babysitting gigs. When some time had passed, without word, Richard Hartley called the Rasmussen home but received no answer. Worried, he drove to the residence. Hartley found the house locked and knocked repeatedly on the front door. Again, he received no response. After a few minutes, he discovered an open basement window through which he entered the house. To his shock, nobody was there except the baby, sleeping soundly in an upstairs room. Hartley immediately called the police. Upon arriving, authorities searched the home and they discovered one of Evelyn's shoes as well as her broken glasses. 
her other shoe was found in a different part of the house. Blood was also found inside. A perimeter search revealed additional bloodstains in the yard and bloody prints on the nearby garage. Bloodhounds were brought in to follow the scent, which they traced to the street. This police theorized was proof that Evelyn must have been put into a car and driven away. A massive search commenced. Volunteers combed the town on foot, while the National Guard, Civic Air Patrol, and Air Force scanned the area from overhead. Boaters took to the waterways in hopes of uncovering clues. Numerous college and high school students joined the effort, and within the first few days, over 2,000 people were looking for Evelyn Hartley. Police asked squirrel and deer hunters to stay alert while out in the field, and farmers were told to explore their land for any freshly turned earth. In an effort to leave no stone unturned, even fresh graves were dug up to ensure Evelyn's body had not been buried there in secret. To take matters further, authorities announced that all cars would be checked. The goal was to have the back seat and trunk of every car in the county inspected for bloodstains or any other suspicious signs. 40,000 stickers were printed, each reading, My Car Is Okay. Authorities would place a sticker on every car that had been checked and cleared. Police Chief George Long ordered all gas station attendants to report any suspicious vehicles, as well as the license number of any driver that refused the mandatory search. Police officers were also instructed to immediately check any car without an OK sticker. Richard and Ethel Hartley made several public pleas for information. They addressed Evelyn's presumed abductor and begged for answers. A short time later, the Hartleys received two phone calls in which a man offered to trade information about Evelyn for $500 cash. Police assisted the Hartleys in setting a trap for the caller. The snare was a success and resulted in the capture of a 20-year-old man named Jack Dufferin. As it happened, Dufferin knew nothing about Evelyn. He was convicted and imprisoned for attempted extortion. A number of local businesses, organizations, and neighbors pooled their money to establish a reward fund for any tips that might lead to Evelyn's return. The fund soon swelled to $6,600. Hundreds of tips flooded the police station. Each tip was investigated and promptly dismissed. Nobody, it seemed, knew anything. A year after Evelyn's disappearance, Sheriff Robert Scullin estimated that his department had questioned approximately 1,200 people. Detective Captain Leo Kim, who spearheaded the initial investigation, placed that number around 3,500. Despite their efforts, though, no new leads surfaced. The case eventually fell into the hands of A. M. Josephson, a criminal investigator from La Crosse County. Josephson would pursue the case for years, paying particular attention to two intriguing items found during the first few weeks of the investigation. The first clue was a pair of tennis shoes discovered near off Highway 14, some 10 miles southeast of La Crosse near Shelby, Wisconsin. The tread on the bottom of the shoes produced a distinct pattern if pressed into the mud. Indeed, a chunk of dirt had been found on the Rasmussen's living room floor that detectives believed matched the shoe tread. The same pattern was also found in footprints outside the Rasmussen home. The second clue was a blood-stained denim jacket, which was recovered 
within 800 feet of the tennis shoe. Josephson believed this too was connected to the crime. While inspecting the shoes, Josephson found yet another lead. He determined that the soles exhibited a distinct wear pattern consistent with operating a Whizzer motorbike. Over the next few months, Josephson pored over sales records and receipts and even tracked down past and present owners of Whizzer motorbikes but never found any worthwhile suspects. The jacket and shoes were put on display throughout the region, with a plea for information from anyone who might recognize them. Again, calls and potential leads flooded the police station. Once again, nothing useful materialized. In the end, the shoes and blood-stained jacket fell out of favor with most investigators who no longer considered the items significant. While the tennis shoes were a large size 11, the jacket was in fact a small size 36, leading many to conclude the two were not connected. Josephson, however, refused to give up. He viewed the size discrepancy as proof that two suspects had taken Evelyn. The investigator continued his search. Alas, his efforts ultimately led nowhere. The Hartley case received an unexpected jolt in 1957, courtesy of Ed Gein. Gein, a killer and body snatcher who confessed to murdering two women and fashioning trophies out of human body parts, was briefly considered a suspect in the disappearance, as he had been visiting relatives in the La Crosse area at the time of Evelyn's vanishing. However, upon searching Gein's property, none of Evelyn's remains were discovered. Gein also passed two lie detector tests during which he insisted he had nothing to do with this case. Authorities officially declared that Gein was in no way connected to Evelyn Hartley. Some, however, continued to suspect his involvement. Years went by without an answer. By 1959, the last remaining efforts fizzled out, and the Evelyn Hartley case went cold. In the ensuing years, numerous individuals came forward and confessed to the crime. All confessions were investigated and dismissed as false. In 1971, a 51-year-old transient named Tommy Thompson was arrested in Casper, Wyoming for passing bad checks. While in custody, Thompson told police of a rape and slaying he had committed in 1953, naming Evelyn Hartley as his victim. Authorities checked Thompson's claims and found that he had been in a Minnesota prison at the time of Evelyn's disappearance. On October 22, 1978, 25 years after Evelyn vanished, the La Crosse Tribune ran a piece on Richard and Ethel Hartley. In it, the Hartleys admitted to giving up hope of ever finding out what happened to their daughter. They further commented that they no longer cared to read about it. Vigo Rasmussen was also interviewed and claimed to be haunted by visions of what may have happened in his home that night. To this day, Evelyn's disappearance remains unsolved. It's coming up on the one-year anniversary when my grandfather passed away. I was at my grandma's house and helping her sort through papers. I was looking for the registrations for my grandfather's guns. He had so many, the people on The Walking Dead would probably think it was Christmas so that way I could take down some to the gun dealer and sell some of the ones that my uncle and cousins didn't want. 
I could not find the registrations to save my life. This man was organized and everything had its place. The problem is the place could only make sense to him. I finally got frustrated enough to say out loud, you planned for everything but your own death, pappy. Maybe give me a dang hand. A picture of my dad and uncle fell down instantly. Under the picture was a box. When I opened it, all the gun registrations were there. The old man is still looking out for us. When Weird Darkness returns, a mother and daughter go camping with the Girl Scouts, but what they experienced was not part of the fun, age-appropriate itinerary. And if you lived in Illinois in 1977, you might have looked to the skies to see something terrifying, as Illinois was under siege by winged weirdness in the form of giant feathered fowls. These stories are up next. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by MyPillow. Why don't we hear what Weird Darkness family member Mike had to say about his? Darren, I happen to be trying new pillows from different sources, something different than the standard pillows that get crappy all too soon. So, what the heck, my pillows sounded worth trying. I ordered two queen-size MyPillows, and these really are, in a word, luxurious. The way your head and neck just sinks ever so comfortably into the pillow, it's so soft but at the same time so supportive. Mike said he received two queen-size MyPillows, that's because he heard about them on Weird Darkness and he was able to get two premium MyPillows for one low price. Go to MyPillow.com, use the promo code WEIRD, that's MyPillow.com, then use the promo code WEIRD. In July 1977, the people of Illinois were keeping all eyes on the sky because something very weird was happening up there. According to scores of eyewitnesses, there were giant birds in the air over the prairie state, seemingly appearing and disappearing at will, and in one terrifying case even attempting to carry off a small boy. It happened on July 25th in the small town of Lawndale when two giant birds appeared in the sky over the community. It was a warm, humid evening and three boys were playing hide-and-seek in the backyard of Ruth and Jake Lowe. The boys, Travis Goodwin, Michael Thompson, and 10-year-old Marlon Lowe, were in the yard at about 8.30 p.m. when the two birds approached them from the south. Marlon Lowe later told newspapers that the three boys first saw the birds swoop toward Travis Goodwin, who ran away and jumped into a small plastic swimming pool that was in the yard. The birds then swerved and headed toward Marlin. One of the birds grasped the boy's sleeveless shirt, snagging its talons into the cloth. The boy tried in vain to fight the bird off and then cried loudly for help. The cries from all three boys brought Marlin's mother, as well as Jake Lowe and Betty and Jim Daniels, two friends from nearby Lincoln, Illinois. They'd been cleaning a camper that was parked in the driveway and came running to see what was wrong. As Marlin screamed for his mother, Mrs. Lowe appeared in time to see the bird actually lift the child from the ground and into the air. She screamed, but the bird may not have released him if Marlin had not hammered at it with his fists. The bird had carried him at a height of about three feet, for a distance of about 35 feet by the time Mrs. Lowe had reached the backyard. The bird dropped him, and although scratched and badly frightened, Marlin was not seriously injured. The birds just cleared the top of the camper, went under some telephone lines, 
and flew off. According to all of the witnesses, they were black with bands of white around their necks. They had long curved beaks and a wingspan of at least 10 feet. The two birds were last seen flying toward some trees near Kickapoo Creek. Mrs. Lowe called the police and a game warden worried about other children in the area. Deputies from the Logan County Sheriff's Department searched the area around the creek on July 25th and 26th, but found no evidence of the birds. A game warden later tried to convince Ruth Lowe that the birds had been turkey vultures, but she didn't believe it. She spent hours looking at photos of large birds and finally settled on something that looked like a California condor, except bigger. At that time, though, California condors were nearly extinct and could be found only in the deserts of Southern California, not in Illinois. In addition, their appearance did not match the Lawndale birds, nor did their size, and they certainly couldn't pick up a child. Many wondered if they had been known birds at all. In the days that followed, the Lowe family was mercilessly harassed by wildlife officials and newspaper reporters, who insisted that the attack could not have happened. But not all the media outlets or the general public were so skeptical. Many newspapers picked up the story in the days following the attack and continued to update readers over the next few months as the two birds, or at least two that looked an awful lot like them, continued their journey across Illinois. Three days after the attack, on July 28th, Janet Brandt of Armington was driving home on the road between Menear and Armington when she spotted a bird that was larger than the hood of her car. It was at about 5.30 p.m. and she saw it flying from east to west in the late afternoon light. She only saw it for a few moments, flying about 30 feet off the ground, but she did notice that it seemed to have a ring of white around its neck. Later that same day, at around 8 p.m., a McLean County farmer named Stanley Thompson saw a bird of the same size and description flying over his farm. He, his wife, and several friends were watching radio-controlled airplanes when the bird flew close to the models. He claimed the bird had a wingspan of at least 10 feet. It dwarfed the small planes that buzzed close to it. He later told McLean County Sheriff's Sergeant Robert Boyd that the bird had about a six-foot body and easily a wingspan of nine feet. Boyd commented that Thompson was a credible witness. He'd lived in the area for a long time and had no reason to make up stories. He questioned the original reports that came in, but after speaking with Thompson, he decided to investigate. On July 28th, Lisa Montgomery of Tremont was washing her car when she looked up and saw a giant bird crossing the sky overhead, soaring slowly over a nearby cornfield. She estimated it had a seven-foot wingspan and was black with a low tail. She said that it disappeared into the sky towards Pekin. The next sighting took place near Bloomington on July 29th when a mail truck driver named James Majors spotted two giant birds. He was driving from Armington to Delavan at 5.30 in the morning when he saw them alongside the highway. He was just passing by a Hampshire hog farm when he spotted the birds overhead. One of the creatures dropped down into a field and extended its claws more than two feet from its body. Suddenly, it snatched up a small animal that Majors believed was a baby pig, which he guessed weighed between 40 and 60 pounds. Both birds flew away to the north. Majors quickly drove to the next town 
and then jumped out of the truck and chain-smoked four cigarettes to regain his composure. At 2 a.m. on Saturday, July 30th, Dennis Turner and several friends from Downs, Illinois, reported a monstrous bird perched on a telephone pole. Turner claimed that the bird dropped something near the base of the pole. When police officers investigated the sighting, they found a huge rat near the spot. Several residents of Waynesville reported seeing a black bird with an eight-foot wingspan later that same day. Reports of giant birds continued to come in from Bloomington and the north-central Illinois area, then from farther south from Decatur to Macon and Sullivan. On July 31st, Mrs. Albert Dunham of rural Bloomington was on the second floor of her house when she noticed a large, dark shadow passing by her windows. She realized quickly that it was a giant bird and got a good look at it. Her description was almost identical to others reported at the same time, including the white ring around its neck. Her son chased the bird to a nearby landfill, but it had vanished before a local newspaper photographer could get a photo of it. On August 11th, John and Wanda Chapel saw a giant bird land in a tree near their home in Odin, Illinois. According to the witnesses, it was gray-black in color with about a 12-foot wingspan. John Chapel stated that it looked like a prehistoric bird and that it was likely big enough to have carried away his small daughter if it wanted to. The huge bird had circled above the chapel's pond before coming to rest in the tree. It stayed in the tree for a few minutes and then flew off without a sound toward Raccoon Lake and the town of Centralia. Wanda Chapel said that she and her husband almost didn't report the sighting because they were afraid that people would think they were crazy. On August 15, 1977, a witness who lived near Herrick reported seeing two giant birds in a section of forest outside of town. He estimated the wingspans of the creatures to have been at least 10 feet. He followed their flight path to an abandoned barn at the edge of the field where they landed for about five minutes. After that, they vanished into the sky towards Taylorville. On August 20th, Paul Harold reported seeing a giant bird in the sky near Fairfield. He said the bird landed in a field not far from his car and remained there for a few moments before flying off again. According to his report, its wingspan was at least 12 feet in width. Harold also stated that he was sure the bird was no vulture or buzzard, which are common in Illinois. Having lived out west for several years, he was familiar with large birds, but said that he had never seen anything this big. After that, the 1977 Illinois Thunderbird sightings came to an end. So what were these creatures? Some will try and convince you that the giant birds were nothing more than turkey vultures or condors. In many cases, though, the birds were spotted by people who would have recognized these commonly known birds. But even if they had never seen one of those types of birds, the descriptions they gave would have only dismissed a small percentage of the anomalous reports. Some researchers believe that the reported thunderbirds might be pteratorns, from the Greek monster bird, a supposedly extinct bird of prey that once roamed North and South America. If these prehistoric birds somehow survived into the modern era, they could certainly account for the reports of the giant birds. We have to be puzzled as we read such tales and wonder about the validity of these strange sightings 
for the reports certainly did not end in 1977. Are these mysterious flying creatures actually real? Do they fill the skies of anything other than our imaginations? If so, then what have so many people seen over the years? At this point, such creatures remain a mystery, but one thing is sure – the sightings have continued over the years, and occasionally an unusual report still trickles in from somewhere across the country. So keep that in mind the next time you're standing in an open field and a large, dark shadow suddenly fills the sky overhead. Was that just a passing cloud in front of the sun, or was it something else? Last summer, my daughter and I spent the weekend at a local Girl Scout camp. I don't want to name the camp and damage its reputation, but something seriously spooky happened to us there. This camp is in the southeast, in a heavily wooded area near the mountains. It's a beautiful place, complete with a waterfall, pond, and scenic hiking trails. We'd gone there every year for an annual mother-daughter retreat, and before last summer we'd never had any problems. The night of the incident, we made s'mores and sang silly songs around the campfire. Around 9.30, everyone headed to their cabins for bed. Because of a no-show, my daughter and I had our own cabin near the pond, to ourselves. There was no AC, so the cabin was pretty stuffy and uncomfortable. My daughter fell asleep immediately, but I tossed and turned, trying not to think about the heat. Outside, I could hear frogs trilling by the pond and the occasional gust of wind. Around midnight, I know the time because I had just looked at my phone, the frog sounds abruptly stopped as if someone had flipped a switch. I thought it was odd but didn't think anything of it. Then I heard an odd rumbling in the sky. It sounded like an airplane flying high overhead, but the sound just went on and on, echoing through the hills. I don't know why, but the noise made me extremely uneasy. I tried covering my head with a pillow and convincing myself it was just a plane, but I knew something wasn't right. After about 10 minutes, the airplane droning sound stopped as abruptly as the frog's sound had. At that moment, it was dead silent. I felt like my daughter and I were the only people for a thousand miles until someone started pounding on the cabin door. Bam! 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 My heart started racing so fast I thought I might have a heart attack. My daughter woke up screaming and crying. As I rushed up to the top bunk, the pounding started again. Who's there? I yelled. There was no answer, so I yelled out the question again. I said, who's there? Nothing. At this point, my daughter was totally freaking out, and I wasn't far behind. I wanted desperately to turn on the lights, but the switch was right by the door, and if whoever was outside tried to come in, I'd be within easy reach. I couldn't help but think of the Oklahoma Girl Scout camp murders. Worse, I couldn't call anyone because there was no signal in the camp. After what felt like an eternity, I climbed back down from the top bunk, ran over to the switch, and turned on the lights. Once my eyes had adjusted to the glare, I noticed a weird green haze in the cabin. I hoped I was imagining things, but then my daughter asked why there was smoke in the air. I wish I could say I summoned the courage to open the door or even look out the windows, 
but I didn't. My daughter and I sat up all night with the lights on, confused and terrified. No one pounded on the door again. The haze faded away, and the frogs resumed their trilling. Eventually, morning came, and we left the cabin when we heard other campers walking around outside. I asked one or two of them if they had heard anything weird in the night, but they all said no. After that, my daughter and I quickly packed up the car and left. I told the counselors we had to leave because she was sick. I have no idea what to make of any of it. The sounds, the pounding, the haze. All I know is that my daughter and I are never going back to that camp again. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And if you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Patrons get commercial-free versions of Weird Darkness and early access to the Weird But True video series. The latest video is entitled Ghost Photos That Defy Explanation. All other Weird But True videos are available for anyone to see on the Weird But True page at WeirdDarkness.com. Patrons also get exclusive content such as chapters of audiobooks that I'm narrating as I record them, often weeks or months before they become available to purchase. I'm currently narrating two audiobooks at the same time, 20 commonly asked questions about demons and UFOs, chemtrails, and aliens. I'm narrating both books right now and uploading chapters of each as I record them. You can become a patron right now for just 5 bucks a month at WeirdDarkness.com. Also at WeirdDarkness.com, you can get the free mobile app, find me on Facebook and Twitter, join the Weirdo Family Facebook group, get stories I didn't have time to use in the podcast, and more. And if you like the show, please tell your friends about it on all your social media, text, email, and any other way you connect with the outside world. And you can drop me a note anytime on the contact page at WeirdDarkness.com. And if you listen via Apple Podcasts, please leave a rating and review. I might read your comments on the show. Raven in the UK listens via Apple Podcasts and says, I absolutely love this podcast. It's updated almost daily and a good mix of true, strange historic stories and personal stories. I go to sleep to this most nights and leave it running into other episodes, and my, do I have some weird dreams. <laughs> a Rough Riders fan on Twitter left me a note saying, Dang it, I catch up on weekends. I'm obsessed with a podcast. I listen to every episode two or three times. Keep up the good work, buddy. Hands down the best podcast I've ever listened to. And Evil Empire listens on Apple Podcasts and says, Best podcast. Thanks so much for putting together so many great paranormal accounts, interesting stories, and information that inspires some lateral thinking. I have a two-hour commute each day and find myself listening to and from work and also while still sitting at my desk at work. I'm always looking forward to the next episode. Thanks again. Well, thank you, everybody, for the amazingly kind comments. The following stories from this episode are purported to be true, and you can find links in the show notes. Terror at Girl Scout Camp was posted at ghostsandghouls.com. The case of the Manacled Mormon was written by Gina DeMuro. Thunderbirds over Illinois was written by Troy Taylor. Was It Real was written by Zarouge. Legend of Sasquatch was posted at TheUnredacted.com. 
The Babysitter Who Vanished was written by Gary Sweeney. Noggin's Pub, written by Mark in Birmingham, England, and it was submitted directly to WeirdDarkness.com. Grandpa's Guns was written by Amanda Rummel, and she also submitted her story directly to WeirdDarkness.com. Music in this episode provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony, and you can find links to both in the show notes. And now that we are coming out of the dark, remember, 1 John 3 verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. Security threats are everywhere. But with Xfinity XFi, you're notified of threats to your in-home Wi-Fi network, so all your connected devices are protected. That's simple, easy, awesome. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit today. Restrictions apply. 